In John chapter 7, beginning with the first verse, it says that Jesus walked in Galilee because he refused to walk down in Judea for the simple fact that the Jews were trying to kill him, and he knew it. Well, we come to chapter 7, verse 5, and he's speaking to his brothers in his family, his obviously his younger brothers, who want him to go down to Jerusalem to a festival of tabernacles or booths. If you will remember from last week, it is a festival about God meeting his people in tents and booths that they constructed around the city. And it was a remembrance of God's presence with Israel out in the wilderness. It was never enacted until they got in the promised land. Very important to note that. Because he wanted his people to remember what life was like out in the wilderness when all they had was him. They didn't have the nice homes or the land of milk and honey. They simply had a cloud following them to shade them from the sun, a pillar of fire at night to keep them warm. They had daily manna. They had water that flowed out of a rock. And they had no permanent dwelling. When the pillar of fire moved and the cloud moved, they moved. Pretty interesting way to live, isn't it? And so God would have his people never forget that all he needed was them. This is the festival that his brothers wanted him to go. And this is what he said to them. I am not going to the feast at this time. My time has not yet come to go. Your time is always ready. You live your life by your own desires and your own plans, quite apart from any direction from anyone else. I'm not like that. Every movement of my life is orchestrated by my Father. I live my life in perfect harmony with my Father. And then he said in a fascinating thing that confuses me a little bit, because all of a sudden, by a simple invitation from his brethren, he says this in verse 6. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. And then he said this, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Because I testify about it that its works are evil. We tend to pass over Scripture quite quickly, and we tend not to get the full punch of what's being said. So let us slow down in our minds and ask ourselves, what evil is Jesus talking about? He doesn't designate it. He just says, the works of the world are evil. Notice he didn't say, I testify against it, as if pointing it out. It is simply there, and I testify about it. That's why they hate me. Well, let's stop and think for a moment. What evils are he, is he referring to? It's not told us. Perhaps it had something to do with the disciples' question, wanting him to go to put on a show, to promote himself in this world. Notice, Jesus says that the works of the world are evil. 
All of them. Every last one of them. The whole basis of the whole thing is wrong. Imagine that. They hate me because I'm not here to remodel them. I'm not here to readjust the world. I'm here to tell the world that from the basis and foundation of your entire orientation of life, it is wrong. That is a whole different ball game, is it not? Uh, I miss my father-in-law. He's passed away now a couple years, and I miss the stories he would tell. Uh, he worked with a man named Birch out at the railroad, and Birch was a strange character. He talked a little funny, and the men had a good time picking on old Birch. Uh, Birch told a story once of desiring to build a, uh, a garage, and so he built the garage and pulled his car into the garage. The problem was when he opened the door, he couldn't get it open because there wasn't enough room. And uh, he just sat there in the car and said, look what I have done. Look what I have done. What was Birch to do with his garage? Was he to remodel it? He was to tear it all down completely and start all over again. This is why the world hated him. Because he told them at the very root and basis of their lives... It is all messed up and irreplaceable, irreprovable. It is, you cannot, you cannot fix the situation. I find it fascinating that in John chapter 15, Jesus says this about you and I. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But... I have chosen you out of this world, therefore the world hates you. Got that? Can't clean that up. You you can't perfume that thing. What is it about the church that the world embraces now? Has our message changed? If the world embraces us and loves us, that, I'm sorry, that absolutely tells me there's something wrong going on. The world has not changed. Perhaps the message has changed. Uh, I read occasionally, because it's good practice for me, to read a little bit of A.W. Tozer, uh, that preacher of Missionary Alliance churches in the 50s and 60s. He was a crusty old fellow with with a crusty message, but this is what he said in a chapter entitled The New Cross and the Old Cross. Listen carefully to the good words of A.W. Tozer. The Old Cross is a symbol of death. It stands for the abrupt, violent end of a human being. The man in Roman times who took up his cross started down the road that had already said goodbye to his friends. He was not coming back. He was going out to have it ended. The cross made no compromise, modified nothing, spared nothing. It slew all of the man, completely and for good. It did not keep on good terms with its victim. It struck cruel 
and hard. And when it was finished, the man was no more. Behold the cross of Jesus Christ as it relates to the believer. Jesus said, if any man will come after him, have come after me, let him deny himself. Notice he didn't say deny himself things. That's aestheticism. Go join a monastery if you want to do that deal. Jesus said he must deny that he even exists anymore apart from me. There's no more radical position than that. Then he writes this about the new cross of which we hear much. The new cross does not slay the sinner. It redirects him. It gears him into a cleaner, jovial way of living and saves his self-respect. To the self-assertive, it says, come and assert yourself for Christ. To the, to the man with an ego, it says, come and do your boasting now in the Lord. To the thrill-seeker, it says, come and enjoy the thrill of Christian fellowship. The Christian message is slanted in the way of the direct vogue in time in order to make it acceptable to the, to the public. And then Tozer says this, We who preach the gospel must not think of ourselves as public relation agents sent to establish goodwill between Christ and the world. We must not imagine ourselves commissioned to make Christ acceptable to big business, the press, the world of modern sports or modern education. We are not, I like this, this is my favorite line, we are not diplomats, we are prophets. And our message is not compromise, it is an ultimatum. You don't get a lot of warm and fuzzies from the world when you begin to talk about ultimatums. God offers life, but not an improved old life. The life that he offers is out of death. I have chosen you out of this world. You are not a part of this world. Therefore, the world hates you. So, look, look at chapter 7, if you will, in verse, oh, let's go to verse 8. You go to the feast. I'm not going to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. Now, some struggle with the idea that he told his brothers, I'm not going to the feast. As, as if Jesus lied to them or deceived them in some way. All he was saying to his brethren is, I'm not going now. You go now. I'm not going at this time. That's all he told them. Look at verse 9. After this, he remained in Galilee. But, verse 10 says, After his brethren had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private, as if it were in secret. Now, let me tell you a couple things that are going on at this point. Jesus gives us a marvelous model for persecution. I know we don't encounter in this nation. Someday we may. Do you know in the 20th century there were more martyrs for Jesus Christ than in any century that has ever existed before? Did you know that? So just because we live in America, don't think this can never come. 
So this is a model for persecution. By the way, in the second and third century, persecution became so popular among Christians that they actually were volunteering to be martyrs. Uh, a prominent religious leader of the day had to stand up and go, oh, wait, wait, back off, back off. Jesus gives this model. If you can avoid persecution, by all means, do so. By all means. Don't walk into the lion's den. Don't walk to the stake and be burned. Avoid it if you can. But when it comes to be obedient to the Word of God, don't avoid it at all. Now, how was Jesus being obedient at this point? In Deuteronomy, it's told that in these three major feasts of Israel, of which this is one, every Jewish male had to attend who was in distance to travel. He had no choice but to go. Now, he was a little late showing up, but he really was on time. God doesn't show up. That's, that's a little joke. Poorly placed. So he had to go. In obedience to the Word of God, he faced the possibility of being killed. All right, so he remains, and then look at verse 11. So, well, let's go back to verse 10. He went up, not publicly, but private. Let me explain that to you. When Jews came from these cities, from the north or south or outside of Jerusalem, Jerusalem would bulge with over a million Jews at this time. You had to go. And so what families would do for safety and fellowship were to avoid, to, to form huge caravans, joining family upon family until you had a big parade coming into Jerusalem. And when a certain caravan would show up from Nazareth or Galilee or, or somewhere, it would be announced and people would come out and see who came in with that caravan. Well, if you're looking for Jesus and the caravan shows up from Nazareth, you come out. And so that's why he didn't want to do it. By the way, this, if it happened in A.D. 29, this particular Passover in the fall, this, would, this one would have started exactly six months to the day before the last Passover that he would come the following spring. Perfect timing. So, no caravan, Jesus came up privately. Look at verse 11. The Jews were looking for him at the feast. Well, we know from past verses why they were looking for him. And they were saying, where is he? Notice they couldn't even say his name. They didn't say, where is Jesus? They hated this man so much, it was just, where is he? When you drop a man's name off and you can't speak it, you've got a problem. By the way, this is a festival of the Jews wherein they worship the presence of God, and here you had all the religious leaders doing what? Hunting for a man's life. Wow. In the middle of a religious service, in the middle of a religious festival of God, these religious leaders, instead of leading the people in worship of Jehovah, were looking to kill a man. Let it, let it be no surprise to you what can come out of a religious situation. Let's read a couple more and then we'll be done. And there was, the camera shifts to a different crowd here than the Jews, being the religious leaders. And there was much muttering about him among the people. Some murmuring and muttering. And what were they saying? While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no. 
He is leading the people astray. You had a mixed crowd of people. You had mixed reactions. Notice the insult to Jesus Christ. Here you have the Son of God, God in the flesh, and men were muttering their opinions of Him. Really? God was walking into Jerusalem in the person of Jesus Christ, and they were having a lively debate of the day. Where there is no faith in Christ, there's always a debate. There's always opinions. Everybody's got opinions. You know that, don't you? And you, most of you know what they're like. And in this case, they're not worth anything. Look at verse 12. They were muttering and murmuring. Some said he was a good man. By the way, the, the, the conclusion of the crowd uh, he, that he's leading the people astray was actually written in the Talmud years after Jesus was crucified in documenting the history of this event. It says that they crucified a wicked man who was leading the people astray. That's what the Talbot said years after this event. Notice verse 13. Yet for the fear of the Jews, everybody kept their mouth shut. Proverbs says that the fear of man brings a snare. Do you see how messed up this whole situation is? Do you see how screwed up this thing is? Do you see how backward it all is? Do you see how upside down it is? Festival of tabernacles and booths. The Son of God coming. They're looking to kill Him. The people are debating, is He a good guy? Is He a bad guy? Is He leading people astray? He's doing all these miracles. They've got Him on a public forum of debate. Really? And here He is coming to this festival. That's why the whole thing needs to be trashed. That's why the whole thing is messed up. That's why Jesus testified of this world that it is so upside down as to be totally rejected. And he had to kill it all and start again. Oh, the depravity of the human heart. It is awful. Well, I want to make a couple observations about this passage, and I want you to listen very carefully. Because as I look over what's going on here at Jerusalem, as I see what's going on in this festival, as I watch his movements and his timing, everything is perfect. He never shows up late. He knows exactly what he's doing. And for every movement of his life, there is, it, is, it is bursting with meaning. Number one. Religion will never answer the great questions of life. What has religion done in this Judaistic situation? It desires to kill Jesus Christ. It is petrified that he's going to take their place as religious leaders. Listen to me. Jesus is virtually shoved out of religion. Because religion has been made by man to subvert and replace Almighty God. And it will never give you the answers of life. It'll debate. It'll muse over and think. 
By the way, that's the way our culture has gone. Do you know that? That's the way many churches have gone. We're no longer pronouncing judgment. We're no longer pronouncing the love of God on the cross of Jesus Christ. We're no longer pronouncing the holiness of Christ. We're debating the matter. We're forming our own opinions about what's right and what's wrong. And by the way, out there, nothing's right or wrong. In fact, the only wrong thing is to say something's right or wrong. That's it. To come to any judgment. And yet the gospel has not changed and Jesus hasn't changed. But religion will tell you absolutely nothing that means anything about life itself. Nothing. Not a thing. Number two. When Jesus walked into Jerusalem midway through the week, he did it in private. He did it in a festival that was all about living in a tabernacle, living in a tent, if you will, living in a man-made booth. Now listen very carefully. When Jesus makes his entrance into our lives, he does it on his timing, in his way, and he comes into our tent. He comes into our tabernacle and he could care less where we live. He could care less how much money we possess. He could care less what we drive, how famous we are, how powerful we are. Take the most powerful man in all the world. Do you know what that means to God? The same as the most humblest person that ever lived. means nothing to him. That's what the whole festival of tabernacles is all about. It's about understanding that life is about just this stuff here. Your life. And when he comes in, there's no big show. And when he comes in, he doesn't care about anything other that you've got than you. I love him for that. We are all about celebrities. We are all about big stuff. We don't, we don't buy magazines in order to read about common folks we read about the pretty folks or the rich folks or the powerful folks or all that that means nothing to jesus christ nothing nothing just us common thirdly i find in this passage that that entrance is always into our tents Now, that makes some people very uncomfortable because we've lived in those tents for a lot of years alone, and we wouldn't mind going through a religious service here and there, but don't talk about coming to live in my tent because that's my private stuff. But he invades that, you know? Uh, you'll find at the end of the, the great festival, he's going to make a big a, a appearance. But that's not the first place he shows up. The first place he shows up is in the temple. Teaching. Rearranging. And teaching such powerful stuff 
that they're even afraid to touch the man. They've never heard a man talk like that man. And that's what he does for us. Privately, quietly, he enters our life, and he's so unimpressed with anything we have to offer him. In fact, anything you have to offer him is nothing compared to what he offers you. I love how he moves in life because he's still doing it today. Now, maybe today you're at a religious service and you're dwelling in the tent and you're fixing to put your tent away and go back to your house and he wants to come in and he wants to go home. By the way, the tabernacle, the tent, is a good place to take wherever you are because wherever you show up, you're just you. You're nobody more than anyone else. Uh, you know, I graduated a couple days ago, and uh, so I, I'm not a pomp and circumstance guy, so I, I don't really care about all that stuff. And so to put the robe on and all that stuff, I'm really uncomfortable. It got hot and sweaty. I couldn't wait to get that thing off. Really, I, I like just to live in my jeans and T-shirt and cut grass and, you know, breathe air and, and have a taco now and then because and, that's the real stuff, isn't it? It's not about all the showy stuff. It's about the, I love that about him. It's just about every day. It's just every day. Uh, one of my favorite shows growing up was uh, Mayberry, um, the whole Andy and Aunt B. And I think one of my favorite episodes of that was when Aunt B's freezer went out. I think it was a freezer that broke down. And, um, you know, she, she didn't want to, she didn't want to pay the man to come fix it. So she tried to get Andy to fix it. You remember that? And the more Andy tried, the worse it got. And, and the line that Andy said over again, Andy, call the man. Just, just call the man. And by the end of the 30-minute you know, show, Andy's like, call the man. Just call the man. Pay him. You, I know, we can't, we're making this the whole thing worse. Call on Jesus Christ. You can't fix your life. You can't do a thing with it. You've tried it for a lot of years. Has it gotten better? The freezer that was broke is now everything's broke down. It's not going to turn around. He can do for you what you cannot do for yourself. To save you, crucify you, raise you up in newness of life. You see, the approach of Jesus is so radical that he just doesn't do anything with anything you got to offer. All he wants is your tent. I, I got more of a tent off. He doesn't want any of that stuff. All he wants is a tent. And he wants to live in that tent with you. That's the amazing thing, is it not? By the way, he didn't come with a big show in, in terms of, and he could have, he should have, perhaps. Well, no, he did what he did because he's God. He came as one of us. He came as a human being with his tent. He pulled his tent up and parked it next to your tent. That's kind of cool, isn't it? Uh, years ago, Dolly Parton told a story. And people that are celebrities, you know, they get tired of all that stuff. So Dolly said her favorite thing to do was to take all the makeup off, you know, and wear baggy clothes and, 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 and go to camp and, and pull up next to somebody and camp next to somebody and spend a week just talking to them. They don't even know it's Dolly. You know, that's what she liked. 
Well, he pulls his tent up next to you and I, and he could care less how brilliant you are and how magnificent you are and all your accomplishments and all your degrees and all your... He doesn't care a thing about that. He's just pulling his tent up next to us. Uh, Werner and I spent a couple hours with a fella who had won a couple world championships in flat picking on the guitar. Uh, When we got an invitation to go to that, I thought, well, Werner's the man that would want to sit with me and watch that. And we had a good time. And this is what the man said. He said, you know, I never had a lesson in life, which is surprising. I just love doing what I do. And because I love picking at this guitar, I got good at it. You see, that's the way life was supposed to be meant. Now, I know there's theory and there's stuff to be learned out of, you know, training and all that stuff. But isn't the best things of life the things that you love? Wasn't church supposed to be like that? Where you just come because you just love to be here. Because Christ lives in your heart and you love the people that love him. And, 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 and we pull out from the world that hates us. And we kind of, you know, hug and, and, and hold hands and kumbaya and all that stuff. And 